This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back, finally, with another episode of Jews You Should Know, a very special and very different episode, our 200th episode. And yes, I know it has been a very long break over the summer, we did not record I actually did record a bunch of interviews, but we did not release anything. I just needed a a little bit of a break to catch up on the rest of my life and also to evaluate kind of where we are in this podcast. This is our 200th episode, nice big round number and a really good time for reflection on what the podcast has been, is, and maybe where it's going. And for that reason, I actually asked a wonderful friend and a prolific podcaster in his own right, Rabbi Dr. David Bashevkin who is the host of the podcast 1840, which also is sort of a multimedia enterprise with a YouTube channel and lots of writings and, and a whole community that's emerged around it. And uh, David and I have become friends over the years and through our shared interest in Jewish outreach, but also just general Jewish events and podcasting in particular. Uh, he was a guest on my podcast, for those who recall, quite early on, well before he even started the 1840 Project, which has become a huge centerpiece of his life since. And then subsequently, I was on his podcast in a unique way, interviewing him on his podcast so that his audience could learn a little bit more about his process, his goals, and sort of the inside baseball of 1840. Well, we subsequently, again, began discussing him coming on our podcast, Jews you should know to do the same thing. But rather than have him just come and interview me about my life story and so forth, I really wanted David to challenge me, to force me to think boldly about what this podcast is, where it's at in its history, because nothing lasts forever or needs to last forever, and really helping me evaluate or reevaluate where we are in this process. So David came on and true to form was really well prepared and quite powerful in his questioning. He did not pull punches, which was great. I really wanted that. I wanted the opportunity to think about this critically, even though this is the podcast itself, and maybe it's a little bit ironic, but I I felt that would be the the best and most authentic way of approaching this subject, while also hopefully giving my listeners a little bit of a window into me as a host, which I don't often do on the podcast. I really much more focus on the guests, as I assume you know. In any event, there's no grand conclusions from the podcast. It got me thinking. I do believe that moving forward, I do have quite a few other episodes that I've already recorded and I will be releasing those, but maybe at more of a slower clip as I continue to think about possibly working on some of the other projects that are referenced in this podcast discussion. And I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities on the horizon in addition to everything else that I'm doing in my life. So stay tuned for some of those. And I hope you enjoy this really open, transparent conversation with David about my process, about my thoughts on this podcast, and what the state of Jewish podcasting is in the fall of 2023. So thank you for listening ahead of time. And as always, a reminder to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram, Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter, now X. That's uh, how long it's been since I've actually released an episode. The transition from Twitter to X took place in that interim. Please remind others to follow And if you're not doing so, please do so yourself. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform. And now to my conversation and really the interview of me by David Bashevkin. It is my absolute privilege and pleasure to uh, return a favor to a dear friend uh, who interviewed me and remains, I believe, the best interview of myself that I've ever been subject to. Always comes incredibly prepared with incredibly incisive questions, which is why it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to the Jews You Should Know audience your beloved host, who I, your dearest friend, David Bishefkin, a former guest of Jews You Should Know. You may have heard your guest interview of me on my 1840 podcast. It is my absolute privilege and pleasure to introduce your normal host, but today's guest, Rabbi Ari Koretsky. 
How you doing, Delvin? Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, this is fun. This is a treat for me. I feel like we could pretty much end it right there. You know, you, you buttered up my ego. <laughs> I'm good to go. Have a, We're done. Have a good night. <laughs> Dianu. No, you, you, you really are an incredibly gifted interviewer, and I want to talk about some of your interviewing process. But I really want to start with Jews sh- You Should Know, because people do not know. There's a lot people should know about Jews You Should Know, the podcast itself. My opening question that I've always asked, and I always forget, you've probably answered it for me before, when did you start, and most importantly, why did you start the Jews You Should Know podcast? It's a great question, and I think about it sometimes myself. I think it was about 2017 when I actually started, but I had the idea for a little while before that. I remember telling people, you know, I'd kind of just discovered what podcasts were, 2015, 2016. Like many millions of other Americans, uh, I got hooked on the Serial podcast. And that got me excited sure. about, uh, I happen to love true crime in general, which maybe we could psychoanalyze at some point, but uh, no, my dream, my dream you should know is to do a Jewish true crime oh, baby. podcast. I have a list of unsolved, uh, Jewish crime mysteries, some more, uh, modern, some, uh, quite a bit older. It would be my absolute dream. We should tag team on that one day. We'll put that on the bucket I'll list. I'll tell you, though, you know, some people have joked with me that, you know, I should interview like some of like the nefarious characters in the Jewish world. Be like, Jews, you shouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the 1840 podcast. Uh, we already have a Jews. You- it depends on the episode. <laughs> you shouldn't know. Every anonymous episode. Jews, you should not cross to the other side of the street. Um, but tell me, you started in 2017, most importantly, and you started before nearly everyone else, uh, something that I, I know I want to talk to you more about, but why did you start this? You had a thriving career as an outreach professional. You were associated with, I believe, Moor in the University of Maryland campus. Was that not enough work for you? Was this because you were bored? You needed another outlet? You needed another audience? Why did you begin this? It's funny. My wife would hear this and, and, and laugh, I'm sure, because... Uh yeah, taking on extra jobs is, is something of a uh, of an addiction of mine. But um, look, I think there's a uh, we'll call it in, in, in yeshiva parlance. There's a low lishma and a lishma. There's a, uh, a more of a self absorbed or self interested reason, and there was a perhaps a more elevated reason. From a perspective of self interest, it was this remarkable opportunity to satisfy my voyeuristic impulse, right? To be able to meet and speak with people who otherwise would not talk to me or would not talk to me for more than three minutes or five minutes or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden they're sitting down and and opening up their heart to me in the most revelatory fashion, the most transparent way. Something about the podcast medium, and we joked about this, I think when we spoke, and the Saturday Night Live skit that you once uh, referenced on your show, about how the podcast all of a sudden creates this dynamic between two people where they're having real conversation and conversation they never would have otherwise. And so this gave me a kind of access and inside look to people that I respected and I thought were you know, fascinating. And I wanted to learn about and learn from, um, you know, I, I shared this on my hundredth episode that my original kind of white whale for the show was going to be, you know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who I know was meant to come on 1840 before he got sick again. Yes. And he, and he was booked, but he was, well, we had him booked in a day, but he had to push it off because he went on to the Tim Ferriss podcast, okay, which, you know, yeah, look. gets several million uh, views every week. Yes, so but I'm I'll bet you, I'll bet you have more Jewish listeners, Dovin, or at least more Orthodox Jewish <laughs> listeners. So, although we can discuss that another time. But anyway, so we, uh, you know, I, I tried actually to book him and, and the office kind of pushed me off and said, oh, he, he's booked through 2019 or something like that, which at the time was several years away. And I was really dissuaded by that. And actually, because of that disappointment, I stopped trying to make the podcast. Um, and I pushed it off a year or two. I can't remember exactly because I felt, oh, the people that I want to speak to don't want to speak to me. And um, I subsequently learned that that's not true. There are individuals that are like that. And there are still, you know, some, some great guests that you know, continue to evade me. But by and large, many people were willing to talk to me. And once I actually made a more earnest effort to try, you know, accessing more than one guest, I found they would. So that's really, that was, that was kind of on the self-interested perspective. Um, on the, I guess, more elevated or more aspirational, idealistic kind of uh, level, you know, I, I've been working, as you said, now uh, at the University of Maryland, Form R, which is a division of Olami, and I, I deal with outreach and work with amazing students. And thank God, my my uh, 
my career, so to speak, now is busier than it's ever been. It's beyond busy. But I felt that, you know, I would bring in different speakers to talk to college students. And in a room, you would have 20, 30, 70, you know, students. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if the wider Jewish world could hear from some of these people and learn from them? Why is it limited? Why is it confined to this finite number that happens to be sitting here, that happens to attend, you know, the uh, the Harvard of Maryland, uh, University of Maryland of College Park? You know, what's going on over there? So I thought if I could introduce those kinds of personalities to a broader array of, of people within the community and across the Jewish community, not only in the, the deeply affiliated corners thereof, but other parts of the community as well, the broader spectrum. I thought that would be a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. And so I ventured to do that. Uh, whether I've been successful or not, you know, is uh, not for me to answer. Well, well, we'll get to, we'll get to measuring uh, your own success. Uh, I, I do appreciate uh, kind of the, the latter reason why you gave, there are so many people who come in to speak to, I don't know, you know, you call them the broader community. I don't know if that's a euphemism you're talking about. You know, outreach is usually in the non-Orthodox community yeah. who are college students, and there are people who come in, look to inspire, and you can reach so much more. I'll be honest with you. The first reason you said, again, you were the first to it. I find it, um, it's one of my pet peeves almost. Like, because people sometimes reach out to me and say, hey, can I interview you for my podcast? And I've actually been on the air with other podcasts, not yours. And I'm just like... What is this for? Like, is this just like because, you know, you wanted just to talk to me? You could have just asked for a 20-minute phone call, a uh, 15-minute phone call. Uh, I, I don't find that to be a compelling reason at all. But I do find uh, outreach uh, to be an incredibly compelling reason to kind of show people, introduce people to Jews who they should know, which is exactly the title. Which brings me to really the second question, which we actually thought about when you interviewed me for 1840, which is the demographic. It was the question I remember you asked me, which was, why do I translate so often? Aren't most of your listeners orthodox? Now, I fought back pretty hard. I've never been so, I think, confrontational to a question. If you listen, I got pretty worked up. And I believe that I was true because you know many of our listeners are not orthodox. I do believe there's not, not a reason to put up needless language barriers. But I'm curious in your mind, who is the ideal listener of Jews You Should Know? And who are the actual listeners of Jews You Should Know? It's another great question, Dovin. Look, originally, I probably imagined a lot of, I would say, you know, Jewishly connected in some level, Jewishly affiliated, but not necessarily observant or orthodox Jews who would stumble across it because they type in the word Jew or Jews or whatever it might be into their podcast feed. Um, I did not anticipate promoting it tremendously among college students, though I hoped, I think, that it would gain more traction with college students than it probably has. What I found is actually I have more probably college students' parents listening and the students themselves, I think because of the nature of the conversations, where people are in their lives, and so forth. Now, that all being said, I also ended up having a lot more affiliated listeners, or orthodox listeners, uh, to be more explicit, um, just because I, I think that it's low-hanging fruit in terms of any content you're going to put out there in the public square. Those who are already most drawn to Jewish media, to Jewish inspiration, whatever you might call it, are also going to be drawn to whatever is being put out there, unless it's really offensive or, uh, you know, controversial. You know, like 1840, I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, unless it's you know, something that's really off-putting. But if it's, you know, wholesome, clean-cut Jewish entertainment, so to speak, and interesting content, so you're going to have, by definition, a highly affiliated, uh, highly affiliated crowd. And so I, I found that a lot of people end up being, you know, in that demographic. I, I'm certainly, most of the times that I'm stopped by people or whatever it, it's, or when I hear from people, it's usually from more affiliated people. It's definitely an amazing ego boost. Dovin, maybe, I don't know how you feel about it, but I love when somebody stops me and, uh, says, oh, yeah, yeah just a raspy voice from, uh, from, uh, that's usually should have <laughs> to me. I was at a falafel shop in Denver, Colorado. Uh, shout out to Daniel. I won't give his full name, but uh, from your neck of the woods, actually. And he, he was up sitting schmoozing with some students. And he said, 
I, I recognized that voice and he came over. That the amount of street cred I got from my in front of my students with that little uh, you know cameo there, that little fan fan club there was amazing. So I think there's been invariably a lot of Orthodox listeners just because that's who ends up often consuming and looking for this kind of content. Um, but that's okay. Is that okay? I want to push back on you, and I want to push back quite strongly. Is that okay, or you were kind of just pivoting to the lowest hanging fruits of who's anyways consuming content, and in some ways is there a part of you that feels that the intended original mission was not successful? Meaning, if the original dream was to introduce people to Jews you should know. It's in the title. That means there are Jews out there who you would not have otherwise have heard of, have interacted with, which I think baked in there is addressing an audience, orthodox or not orthodox, but one that is less affiliated. Do you feel like you've been successful in introducing Jews who would otherwise not have known or heard about other Jews to them. Yeah, so uh, let's take it in two directions. Number one, there's no question that I wish that the audience was larger in all segments. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, this is like not my first job, not my second job. It's not even really my third or fourth job. You know, I, I do it so on the margins um, of my life that I don't have, you know, funding and, and a whole operations team. And I just so, want to state, yeah. because of anybody listening in on this, uh, aside from the fact that we have to be great friends, I think I certainly admire you a great deal. And as I said in the beginning, I really think you are one of the best interviewers. Uh, but I, I need to live up to those interviewing standards. So I'm not I'm not pulling any push, punches. Baby, I'm going to ask a couple of couple of tough questions. I love it. But before we get to the size, I want to talk about the intended demographic. Yeah. So I would say not uh, not to the degree that I would like and that that does you know that does dovetail with the notion of size as well. But I'll, I'll get back to that. But. I think a lot of it just owes to the fact that I don't have a marketing team. I don't have, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a marketer professionally. I don't have time to promote it, you know, vociferously on social media. I don't have graphics. In other words, I'm really, it's really, it was really started and continued to be a mom and pop, basically a one man show. I had some help for a little while with an editor and things like that. But to get to that kind of reach would require a more coordinated effort and uh, bring in some skills from other professionals and other people that I don't you know, possess myself. Um, and so, yes, I think that, that that has not achieved that. Now, is it sort of revisionistic or uh, sort of a, a, an expression of cognitive dissonance to say that many of the people that ended up gaining, I actually learned something powerful about which is that um, there's lots of Jews within the Orthodox community that could use inspiration and that could use an introduction to unique personalities that they wouldn't come across because they're working so hard and they're living their lives and they're going to Minyan and you know doing Shabbos and all those things, but aren't necessarily hearing these kinds of inspirational characters. Yes, I believe that that I discovered that as well, and that everyone needs that kind of uh, that ins that and again inspiration, whatever word you want to use. And uh, now one could say that that was that's really kind of, you know, moving the goalposts, so to speak. And that could be correct. And I don't, again, these are not mutually exclusive goals. Theoretically, it's just that if you're doing something in a way that you don't have a massive promotional uh, operation behind you, you know, in this very kind of difficult world of indie podcasting, so to speak. So, you know, oftentimes your audience is going to be organic and beyond kind of your, your discretion. So I, I do feel pleased that I'm able to engage an audience that already has other opportunities Jewishly, and this is kind of a different sort of opportunity, and it allows me to have that voice and that outlet and that part of the community that professionally I'm not engaged with. But yes, of course, would I like the entire broader Jewish world to be listening and college students on campuses across North America and so forth? Yes, obviously, I, I would love that goal. And, uh, you know, if, if, if the, the right person is there to help partner to, to make that happen, then I'm, I'm here to, uh, to engage. I want to come back to that because I actually do believe I am of the opinion that if you redesign the very bones of the podcast with the audience in mind first, I think you could still capture them. But I do want to talk about the other opportunities, and I want to talk about something that I think podcast hosts re rarely talk about, but you have a front row seat to. And that is you were the first on the market. 
You were the you you're 2017. Most of the other large Jewish podcasts, maybe with the exception of Unorthodox, which is run by Tablet, which I think is a little bit older than you. But a lot of the Orthodox entry into the podcast space began 2019, 2020 during COVID, and you saw an explosion of other podcasts. Forget about 1840. We're not even the league leader. Uh, there are others that are even wider, uh, meaningful people, inspiration for the nation. You have this explosion of podcasting, and here you are getting a front row to other podcasts that are taking more or less, 1840 is a little bit of a different structure, I'm not here to plug my podcast, but other podcasts that are nearly identical to your structure and how you do things, and you see them explode in the Orthodox world. Now, I've been on every Jewish podcast that's on my bucket list. Despite your protestations otherwise, you also uh, aspire to To that. be on every every single known Jewish podcast. I've been on all of them, and, and they're all wonderful. But I've said consistently, you are the best interviewer. You come the most prepared with the best questions, uh, and I really appreciate the way you approach it. I want to know, and I want to say the word outright, how do you deal with jealousy? How do you deal with the fact that you were the first to the market and you are watching people copy your exact formula? Shows that if you swapped out the name Jews You Should Know, uh, it would be the exact same podcast. You couldn't call 1840 Jews You Should Know, but there are a lot of other straight interview shows. You could call them Jews You Should Know. That's basically what they're doing. They are putting up big numbers. I want to know, first and foremost, do you have feelings of jealousy and how do you deal with them as a content creator? Yeah, so number one, the answer is absolutely yes. 100%, I'm a human being. And obviously, when I see people that are younger than me and, you know, and came in later than me and sometimes taking the same exact guests and sometimes not, which we could talk about guest selection as well. But of course, there's feelings of jealousy at times. Look, it is greatly buffeted, so to speak, by the fact that, like I said before, this is not even remotely my day job, uh, and that I have a very, very full and rich life built around uh, a career that I'm very passionate about, more than a career, a calling, really, and uh, as well as, you know, my family and, and other wonderful pursuits in my life. And, and that certainly, I think, softens that that blow, for sure. If this was my you know, raison d'etre, then I would certainly feel uh, quite a bit more covetous, so to speak. Um, that being said, yes, of course I feel that way. Look, at the end of the day, I also recognize that there is a difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing on a f number of fronts. First of all, those are full-time professional media operations. Jews You Should Know is not. Jews You Should Know at the end of the day is me talking to a microphone to people that I find compelling most of the time. Occasionally not, but you know, most of the time that people that I find compelling and interesting and of, of note and of worthiness to present to the broader uh, Jewish arena. That's number one. And so I have to recognize an apples and oranges quality to that in the sense that when you're, when you are competing, quote unquote, with a, you know, fully funded professional media operation, of course, that is going to be a, a difference in, in outcomes as well. Look, at the end of the day, I like to think I'm offering something a little bit different on a few fronts. The kinds of guests that, I, that I'm willing or interested in bringing in uh, are definitely different. I'm not only interested in the quote-unquote Orthodox Jewish celebrity. In fact, in some ways, that interests me the least of all kinds of guests. I like to surface other voices, whether they're Orthodox or not. If they're lesser known or even if they're well-known, perhaps they're not coming because of their religious inspirational qualities, but because of things that they're doing in general for the Jewish people or for the Give me an example world. of a guest you have that looking back would not have worked on one of the oh, I mean, I mean, you could look at my shows. list, probably the vast majority of them, I would guess, or at least half of them. One of my favorite guests of all time, who's now actually uh, become a more of a household name, it was an amazing interview. It was an amazing experience. Uh, I did a uh, summer of maybe 2019. I can't remember it was before COVID. I did a, a tour in Israel and I interviewed 25 people in two weeks and released live. And I released those slowly over the year. And one of the places I went uh, was to the home of Daron Almog. Daron Almog was the first soldier to land, to get off the plane in, in Entebbe, in the raid on Entebbe. He was an amazing you know, military hero. He was the, the chief, the general of the Southern Command in Israel. But he also had a son who was severely autistic and um, didn't know what to do with him and learned subsequently that there was a very shameful past uh, within Israeli society of actually some very 
prominent Israeli leaders who had sort of shunted away their own special needs children, in, in some ways spirited them off to other countries uh, or otherwise kind of institutionalized them and did not you know, incorporate them into their lives. And he was determined to do something different. And he became an integral part of the Ali Negev uh, village and raised millions of dollars for them. But today he is, uh, this is subsequent to our interview, today he is the the, uh, the chair of the Tochnut. Uh, and, you know, he's a very, very prominent player in uh, in Israeli politics, Israeli diaspora affairs, and all those kinds of things. He is a secular, quote-unquote, Jew in Israel. I was almost in tears, and my wife was in tears. She actually was there with me on a rare occasion, uh, at his home listening to him. And we've remained friends, and, we, I, you know, what's happened back and forth, and... You know, like like what only happened in Israel, I went to visit a farm for Shemitah that actually our mutual mentor friend, Rabbi Ari Bergman, uh, had sent me and set me up with this farmer to go in and visit during the Shemitah, the sabbatical year. And I went to this farmer and I'm schmoozing with him and we start talking and he tells me this army commander was Daron Almok. So we took out a selfie and sent it over to him and, you know, they still have their group chat from 35 years ago. Only in Israel, you know, you got a, a, a simple farmer out there doing Shemitah and uh, the head of, you know, the Jewish agency and they were army buddies, you know, who saw action together. But in any event, a guest like that would not, you know, would not, I don't think, be even considered for, for other podcasts. Again, I'm not uh, casting aspersions. Every podcast has its own uh, demographic, its own identity. If I could distinguish, I think a lot of the other podcasts, and, and they're doing wonderful things, what they're doing is they're kind of riding that wave of Jewish celebrity culture. Room celebrity culture, really, which is, you know, become this cultural phenomenon as the Orthodox community has ascended in strength and become very self-assured and, and very uh, powerful. It's developed its own celebrity culture, singers and speakers and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and I don't cry that. I do decry that a little bit, let me be honest, but I don't, <laughs> I'll be really honest. But if, if I step back from it, I can appreciate it because every society needs culture. Culture is integral, right? It is sign of the padding uh, of Jewish life. You can't just have, you know, straight ritual, straight, you know, religious observance. You need to live in a, in a broader society and that, you know, so to the degree that you have your own independent, authentically religious sort of culture, I think that's helpful for people and keeps people, you know, connected to the deeper ideals. Sometimes I find it a drop superficial, you know, kind of like the soundbite sort of Judaism, and it doesn't always appeal to me. Sometimes it appeals to me, but I understand a tremendous need for it, and I think there's a mass appeal there. And so besides the, again, the the promotional quality of, of these media outlets, I think there also is an appeal to maybe it's an easier listen or or a just a more natural listen for people that are marinating their entire lives in these kinds of uh, personalities in these kinds of circles and and so forth i'm i'm having different conversations using different vocabulary very often I mean, my my son had a friend in yeshiva somebody you know, sometimes you get a you get a your when your son's your child's friend is listening you know and that's like uh, very exciting because then you look cool to your children but uh he says you know when i want a, a good listen i listen to podcasts when i want to you know prove my vocabulary i listen to you know jews you should know so i you know i took that as a compliment because you know i, I pride myself on my uh my sesquipedalian uh, nature and, uh, you know, I enjoy that. Whether it's an ego thing, probably is. And you even know how to pronounce the words. I use big words, but I don't well, know how to pronounce them. That's because you're a consummate autodidact of it, you know, but that's that's, that's the, the pitfall of any autodidact. I can I can list you some of the great rabbis I know who fall into the same category. And sometimes I listen to their sheer and I want to, you know, kind of send an email with a pronunciation. But, you know, it's fine. I, I enjoy that. It's it does. It's definitely ego gratifying. Um, but, but I think it's serving a different kind of need. Is it a narrower need? Is it a less popular or less? exciting or less accessible kind of offering perhaps it's hard to know you know what's a function of promotion and, and and so forth and what's a function of the content itself well i hope by the end of this we could at least sort a little bit of that through i think one of the things that we really need to parse apart is you've you've mentioned a few times already the fact that this is not your first second third or fourth job this is your fifth job uh, and it needs to be an, a an afterthought. I am not sympathetic to that as an excuse. I'll be honest with you. I think anything that you put out there, uh, you know, it it's like somebody getting up uh, to speak in shul, and right away at the beginning of the speech, they they commit what I think is a cardinal sin of creating content. I had no time to prepare. 
Well, I would, but David, let me push back on that. I would distinguish in the following way. I would distinguish between the quality of the content and its ability to be promoted because those are two different things in my mind. If you're putting out a quality product that you stand by and you're proud of, you know, that I, that I think is very important to do. Now you tell me it requires a certain amount of effort or funding or whatever it might be to then get that you know, more broadly circulated so that I could say, look, I don't have either the time or the money or whatever it might be in order to do that. I, I, I see a strong distinction there. Okay. I respectfully disagree. I, I, I think that th- there's, there's something a little bit more fundamental in aligning the demographic, the medium, and the message. But I appreciate the fact that this is not your first job. But I do want to dig deeper into the differences between podcasting and the contemporary world of outreach. How do you approach and what are the differences in the ways that you approach creating content live for your students on college campus? What are their needs and how does it differ from the way you conceive and develop content for your podcast audience? How are those Jewish needs different? I think my mindset is very different in a way between the two. When I'm dealing on a college campus, it's a very, very personal endeavor. And in many ways, the abstract or the intellectual or the theological even almost is secondary to the personal connection. And the the personal relationship really is the primary mechanism through which, you know, everything else flows after that. Um, because we're dealing in relatively small numbers, let's say in hundreds, you know, and because the people are in front of us and because they're hearing in, you know, whether it's one-on-one or in small seminars or things of that nature, it's an entirely different, you know, manner of of connecting and, and disseminating Jewish wisdom, Jewish content, and so forth. Dig a drop deeper. So what is the Jewish content you are putting before them? You have that audience of 100. The relationship is there. At some point, you want to share with them Jewishly. How does that Jewish content differ from the Jewish messaging that you try to develop on Jews? You so honestly, very often it's much more basic. That's first of all. In other words, when I'm speaking to a student, most students that I'm working with today know very, very little about basic Judaism. And we've talked about this before, you know, in, in our own private conversations about the, the power of getting back to basics and how that's often overlooked and, and, and underappreciated. I get frustrated. There's so much pedantry and, and so much, you know, bickering in the Jewish world over like these infinitesimally small minutia of distinctions. And like the average Jew in today's world doesn't know what Shavuos is has never sat in a sukkah, like doesn't know who Abraham was, right? Let, let's stop and like, can we just like talk basic Judaism to people? Again, when you're only in a tiny little, when you live life in a very, very narrow sphere, then you're never going to have those conversations. But when you are quickly exposed to people across the spectrum of, of Jewish life, you're going to discover that those are the conversations you need to have first. So any Jewish wisdom that we're beginning with is just... First of all, it's personal. It's talking to, speaking to the person, where they are in their own lives, where they're going, what their dreams and aspirations are, how Judaism can inform that. And that's a very different kind of conversation that obviously cannot be had in a broad medium. And again, the, the general tenor of the, of the concepts that we're conveying are much more basic. When I'm talking to a guest on, on the podcast, I'm already starting at a much higher, so to speak, quote unquote, intellectual position. I'm taking a lot of things for granted, even if I'm translating, but I'm not going back to the most rudimentary foundations of every Jewish you know, idea. And most of the time, we're not even talking about Judaism, per se, as much as we're talking about them as a person and their embodiment thereof. It's a higher-level intellectual conversation, which might be why a lot of students aren't necessarily listening to it, because... Maybe it's over their head or it's just, you know, not not giving them the very, very basics that, you know, they might need. If one of your students asked you and said, hey, Rabbi, I heard you run a podcast. I'm interested in listening to a podcast I run every day. What podcast would you recommend that I listen to? One of your students. Does that podcast exist? And if so, what podcast? It's a phenomenal it? question. It's, it's a question that's been bandied about by people like myself, you know, outreach professionals and so forth, and people like yourself for quite a while. And the reality is there is a dearth both of those entry-level podcasts, A and B. Again, like anything else, as you know, as someone who is so prolific uh, in in the media space, in the social media space, there is content creation and there's distribution. And distributing to this demographic, which is not 
naturally there. It's not they're not sitting together in shul waiting to be delivered to read the shul newsletter that says listen to this podcast. There's no easy way to access them. That is that is also you know the, the million dollar question. You know I think a lot of institutions H is trying to you know attack this. Yes, I'm going to. But th- therefore, I-, I would not recommend my own if they were looking for a tutorial in basic Judaism, for example. Akov Volby, for example, who's been doing this a lot, even a lot longer than I have, he's created sure. six or seven podcasts that are just going through basic Jewish history, going through the Torah, going through, you know, the stories, those kinds of things. My colleague in the University of Pennsylvania, Rick Fox, and his colleague, uh, Mayor Beer, they created, uh, you know, what does Judaism say about, you know, and they just go through different topics. That's much more informationally interesting for a beginner student. However, Maybe it's less entertaining. And often people are looking not only to learn straight content, they want to hear stories. They want to bring it alive through the lived experience of real people. And so that's a different mode of learning. I'm not educating in a sort of a frontal way, so to speak. I'm not teaching about Jewish holidays and things like that. I'm teaching through the osmosis of hearing uh, people's stories. Why have you never created the Jews you should know and literally interviewing your own students, students around the country, with the help and backing of Olami, which is this national massive organization that is touching outreach throughout the country, and say, I want to wed the interview, the entertainment with the basics. I want to do a, I don't know, a 25-minute interview with somebody talking and being introduced to Shavuos for the first time, and then coupled with it, Meaning, is there ever a point where you feel like you would say, mission accomplished, we did something really good and really special, but now it is time to deeply reinvent what I am doing? I know I've experienced this. I did a a column for Mishpacha Magazine for many years. I loved it. Top five. Uh, I was the badchen for the yeshiva community, putting out jokes. And there came a point where I felt a little stuck in the medium. And I felt there came a point where like, I said what I needed to say, but anything I go further is I'm just reaching in and, and kind of selling, you know, the, the, the same spoiled recycled goods. And I need something new. And I didn't feel that newness. And I'm curious for you, at what point, if ever, will you say it, it is time to fully reinvent what I'm doing? It's a fabulous question. Look, and, and I think I have the luxury of considering that question because my livelihood doesn't depend on this, right? So uh, that, that is a benefit. I, I'm entirely open to that. And look, I, I think you're describing a different podcast. I, I wouldn't even call it Wedding the Two as much as I would call it. Exactly. There is content that, that is waiting to be created by somebody. Now, whether that's to be Ari Koretsky or somebody else, you know, I, I don't believe I'm not. I don't have the you know sufficient enough of a messianic complex to believe it has to be me. You know what <laughs> I mean? It could be David Bashevkin. It could be uh, lots of other people. I'm doing a lot of different things. The question would be, what would I take away in order to do something like that? You know, and and that that would be a real require a real cheshbon on nefesh, a real uh, inner searching because it's not simple. It's not simple at all. Given you know where we at in terms of where we position ourselves as an outreach organization and the kinds of things we're doing and the numbers we're reaching within what we're doing, it's really not a simple question to replace this with that. Uh, in theory, I'm open to it, and and I don't feel like this is like an inexhaustible wellspring of capacity. There definitely are times where I feel like who's going to be that next great guest that really inspires me? Am I am I really that interested in the next person I'm interviewing? Not always, you know, and um. Of course, then there's always those those white whales out there. They're like, if or when I could meet that person, that would make the whole thing wor- worthwhile. Yeah. I've said it before. I may have said it when you interviewed me. Uh, sometimes the greatest nightmare is being given your own dreams. My partner and everything that I've done in 1840 is Mitch Eichen. And uh, when he gave me the ability, a, a very extraordinarily generous sum of money to start it, uh, but n- not enough that I could just kind of coast and, you know, have a full-time, I don't have any full-time employees or anything like that. But it was a nightmare. And the reason why it was a nightmare is because the only person I got to blame for the relative success or failure of the initiative was now myself. And and that's a terrifying position. I no longer got to say, when I first started, it was my third, fourth job. I do a lot of things, but it's really at the center and the heart of what I do. And I'm not able to lean on anything else. And like, I kind of wonder for you, if somebody gave you a great deal of money and allowed you to start to restart 
start from scratch, zero-based budgeting, without any other preconceived notion to start to restart a podcast, take all the time that you're putting into this, and start from scratch, what are you doing with that time? It's an important question. I haven't thought about it enough, to be honest. I do believe that whatever I would do, it would not replace what I'm currently doing already. In other words, I feel so passionately about what I'm doing right now and so energized by it. Uh, you know, my team has been growing and we're just doing some extraordinarily exciting things and really touching people in just a profound way that it wouldn't replace it. If anything, it would allow me perhaps to build out a team of which I could be a part and think innovatively and creatively about creating content and then reaching people and, and helping, you know, get these kinds of other messages out there and this kind of educational programming or content out there. Um, and I would, I would, again, certainly open to that kind of a suggestion. And, uh, you know, if, if this was to be construed as an offer, David, um, you know, I, <laughs> yes, that in theory, yes, but it would not replace what I'm doing. And therefore it would be part of a collaborative effort with other talented people, I believe. Do you ever, and this I'm asking both in a Kirov setting and on the podcast, do you ever find your orthodox affiliation stifling in the types of topics that you really deep down want to talk about and the types of people you really deep down want to interview? I look, there's no question that there have been guests whose uh, sensibilities, whether religious or political or otherwise, have, have not fully aligned with mine, to say the least. And, and there have been even rare instances where I've had to edit out certain things that I found particularly offensive on such a core level that I, I felt it would be derelict to myself, to my own integrity, and to the you know to the audience to present them. That doesn't normally happen. Again, the focus generally is biographical, and the goal generally is it's not a gotcha kind of podcast. So I'm not pushing people in a way to sort of expose the... Except when you interview me. <laughs> that's only because you basically asked for it, David. You know, <laughs> it was fantastic. It's not the kind of... It's not fellow journalism. I'm trying to really draw out the best parts of people. And so when you try to see the best in others and you try to highlight the best in others, that's usually what ends up happening. So, no, it doesn't really... And in fact, the opposite. I love the fact that on a personal level, I can become that sort of ambassador. It's one of my great passions. Maybe it's a little Pollyannish. I probably am. You know, but... I love the concept of being able to speak with these people uh, who are very different and to walk away building friendships and feeling a real sense of connection. I, I absolutely love that. And for some reason, I'm like, I'm like a bageling magnet. You know, I, I have that about me that people, different kinds of Jews love to just talk to me. Well, you're really infectious. And I think you're one of the few people I've met who seems to be a legitimate extrovert, meaning you get energy from talking and speaking. Yeah, it's interesting because people. people get to know me really well and they see me in other moments, see that I have a very strong sort of quieter side, which shocks people. But uh, I do get, you know, kind of after a lot of engagement with people, I do like to withdraw and, and read and, and things like that. But people, it takes, takes a lot to see that. Um, I definitely, you know, I definitely do get get a lot of energy from certain kinds of interaction with the people. That's for sure. Um, you know, just, I was just in the airport, you know, and a uh, guy comes over to me. I, I said, Oh, you left your wallet in the bin over there. Said, Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, early hot out, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, boom, you know, then I'm on the plane and this guy turns next to me and he, and he, and he goes to the back. He's, he's in the window seat. He's got to go to the bathroom, comes in, comes back and he goes, how do you say thank you in Hebrew? And he ends up, you know, and we have a whole discussion. I'm constantly having that. I'm for, for some reason, I'm drawing that. I think people, you know, kind of just feel safe doing that. Who are your interview role models? I remember, you know, we did two episodes together, one where you came on to 1840, and the first one when I came on to Jews You Should Know, and you asked me a question that I wish more people had asked, but you're the only one uh, who really tried to thread the needle, and I remember you asked me a question what connected my work? I wrote a book called Synagogue, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought. I'm plugging my own book on your podcast. God should bless you. Uh, and uh, and I also wrote this humor column for Mishpacha Magazine, later publishes a book called Top Five. And you had asked me, what is the connection between your fascination with failure and humor and comedy? They seem to be totally disparate topics. And I thought it was a very incisive question. It really allowed me to kind of unpack and share in ways that I hadn't anywhere else. I was curious when you asked me that, like, what is your preparation process and who are your interview 
Rabbeim. Like I've learned from the non-Jewish podcast. My Rabbeim, as a come, my teachers, my mentors are Howard Stern and Conan O'Brien. I hope a later iteration of Howard Stern and not the uh, not the earlier one. <laughs> the later, yes, PG thirteen Howard Stern, not the early immature uh, Howard Stern. But but I have what to say on early immature Howard Stern. Also, if you watch his first interview on E, uh, his first guest ever was Gary yes, Shandling, your, your hero, who I yes. happened to be. <laughs> My hero, who I'm obsessed with, uh, and Gary totally unpacks and deconstructs his Narishkeit, which I think had him kind of turn and become a little bit more of a thoughtful, mature uh, interviewer. But but I've always been enamored with them. I'm curious for you, who are your interview role models, and what is your preparation? Like I'll, I'll be honest with you. So this might sound I don't I don't want to sound arrogant or anything like that to the degree that I am, I have a natural talent for it. I don't have a lot of interview role models. I do enjoy, you know, Dan Patrick is known as the great interview in sport, in the sports world. And, you know, I've listened to him many times, you know, and I am a sports fan. Uh, Larry King was known as the great political interviewer and, and so forth. Dovids doesn't, doesn't think so, but he's known a lot of no, I just love my favorite Larry King because I, I I share the clip many times is his inter his interview after Jerry Seinfeld went off the air where he asked Seinfeld, "Did you step away or were you canceled?" And Jerry just goes to the canceled. I was the number one show on television. Uh, it's my favorite little exchange between Larry King and uh, and Jerry Seinfeld is what I shared when people asked if my mishpacha column got cut. I said cut. We were the number one column. Look, I believe that good interviewing, like good relationship building, has a lot mostly to do with the quality of active listening. Uh, I think people in today's world, as much of a talker and a schmoozer and an extrovert as I am, uh, I think, again, it sounds so self-important and self-referential and I don't like it, but the reality is I, I think I'm a good listener when I'm in, in that mode and really deeply listening to what the person's saying and thinking in the moment, like, does this cohere? Does this make sense to me? Does this fit with other things I know about this person or what they said earlier? And I'm really genuinely like in the moment with that person. And then when I combine that with just being a naturally kind of curious student of life and thinking about life in general. So I'm just, I'm interested in these people. I'm genuinely interested in them, whether they're selling, you know, automobiles or uh, they're, they're, they're a rabbi or they're whatever they do, you know, and I, I'm truly interested. And so I think the combination of genuine curiosity and true active listening, like deep internalizing of another person's being, of another person's story, that allows for powerful interviewing, irrespective, if I could use that perhaps inc incorrect word, of any techniques or tactics. Obviously, you have to have some capacity to engage in conversation and a sense of timing and a sense of you know, articulation. But that ability, that, that empathic ability and that genuine curiosity, I really think are the magical combination as an interviewer. Ari, I am so fascinated by you and I really am, despite my line of questioning, uh, so impressed uh, with your work, with your tenacity, with your infectiousness. Uh, we have shared so many uh, kind of voice notes back and forth about the work that we share, overlap, critique, feedback, encouragement, enthusiasm. Uh, I really uh, do consider you a friend, even though we've only met uh, less than a handful of times uh, in person. And I really do admire your work quite a bit, even though, and it's really a testament to my esteem for you, uh, even though I do believe that, that you should fully reinvent uh, Jews You Should Know, which is a crazy thing to say, closing out a Jews You Should Know interview. But I believe that with my heart and soul. It's my esteem for your work. I think your talent is too important to kind of be like, oh, this is my fourth or fifth job, so like, take what you can get. I think you should channel your strengths and your energy to something that should be justified on its own merits, uh, regardless whether it's your fifth job, sixth job, or hundredth job. So, David, let, let me let me turn it around on you then. What, what do you think is missing in this world of Jewish podcasting? What do you think is that unique voice that you know potentially I or or others like me could add? And uh, you know where where are those you know where are those gaps? Where are those voids? A, I am very, very critical about the way the larger Kirov world, I mean, we shared some criticisms about the Orthodox world, uh, kind of bumper sticker celebrity culture inside the Orthodox world. Uh, I have I have all of those reservations. I would add on to them. Some of the stuckness that I found in the larger outreach world about how they think about content and putting out content, I, I think it is a 
I don't want to use the word damning again. We don't want to... Darning. Was it darning, Kevin? Darning. I, I was absolutely shocked that Tablet Magazine, who I love and work for, I, I shared this publicly, was the first to give a taste of Dafyomi to a mass audience. Everybody's sleeping at the wheel, and Tablet Magazine comes ahead and builds a daily Dafyomi program uh, by Leah Leibovitz that has you know four to five thousand daily listeners. Like, like what happened? We, we convinced ourselves that we could only share you know the pristine Talmud, but it, it, it was it was shocking to me. And I think there are people who are a little asleep at the wheel. I don't think you are included among them, but I think what is missing is there is a big gap between kind of the orthodox world which likes to tell stories in completion of somebody who kind of traversed the gap from a assimilated secular or or less affiliated life into a fully orthodox life we like telling those story of Bali Chuva as, as they are known, but we very rarely highlight the story uh, at the very beginning, uh, a third of the way through, a fifth of the way through. And I think so much of your talents could be geared towards highlighting the story, the very early journey with the vulnerability. And I think I, I think the reason why we don't hear these stories is people are afraid because we don't know how they're going to turn out and we don't know how they're going to resolve. I think we should be less afraid of telling those stories. And I think it's people like you. I would love to listen to you interview college students, people of different ages beginning to take a journey, to take a step towards their Jewish identity, their Jewish learning, having no idea how it's going to pan out. It may fall apart. And talking to people along those journey at the very early stages, what was your first Shabbos like? What was your first, What was it like visiting a base medjish for the first time? I think it would be so much more instructive for the Orthodox community. I don't need to be introduced to Jews who, you know, I've vaguely heard of, but now I know their full biography, but I would learn a lot from hearing what was it like for your college students visiting an Orthodox community for the first time. I think everyone could learn a lot from that, and you are uniquely suited to tell those stories. So, so that's really where I, I would start, yeah. highlighting those stories and getting back to basics, and you could complement it, I don't know, with more professional rabbis or information or any of that stuff. But really, the turning towards Jewish learning, the turning towards Jewish observance, Jewish commitment, at the very early stages when we're filled with questions, filled with wonder, filled maybe with cynicism and questions and all those things, and what is that, how does that journey unfold? And like checking back in with people. I think that's really, really compelling and something that is sorely lacking uh, in the Jewish uh, content space. I appreciate that. And I, and I actually think it's a beautiful idea. And uh, maybe, there, maybe there are people that would love to partner and, and participate in something along those lines. Maybe you yourself, David. You heard it here first, <laughs> listeners. You heard it here first. All Ari needs uh, to get this started, as he said so many times, is a great deal of money. <laughs> uh, so please, listeners, you can forward him the money. Please just give 10% uh, to 1840. But I want, I want, I want to say one thing, David, in, in defense of the sort of the, of the establishment, so to speak, because I think it's, I think it's easy yes. to pick on the establishment. And, and I'm a card carrying member of the sort of the, the cure of the outreach establishment as well. Um, and, a, and a proud one. And, and I think that there's again, an important distinction to be made and a dispositional reason why this the lacuna, that this gap exists that you're talking about. Um, those who are deeply called in the trenches, those who are really every day, I mean, my average day, you know, at the beginning of the college, you're standing outside of a, of a freshman dining hall, flagging down Jewish Turks. And that's what I do. And then texting 18-year-old kids, and I'm a 45-year-old man, texting 18-year-old kids, will you please come and meet with me in the student union building and learn about our programs? And all the steps that that takes, and the, the real, like I call it hand-to-hand -hand combat, of deep, engaged, personal Jewish education, in many ways that is a dispositionally posing orientation to that and then mass media creativity and production and dissemination, right? You're talking when you're, when you're in the trenches, when you're just thinking about Bob and Lisa and whatever. What? I know all about the trenches and I admire is the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the holy of holies of Jewish education, is, are those meetings one-on-one. -on -one. But I know you don't believe that it is impossible or there is no space. 100%. There certainly could be a space for it. I'm just saying, when we're talking about, when you're looking at certain institutions, 
And that's where I said the establishment has failed. The establishment has failed at harnessing mass media to create and begin Jewish journeys. They have, by and large, with the exception, more or less, of H.com, Chabad.org. They'll come up with a thousand excuses. Rabbi Sachs, you know, has done this well. I think David Wolpe, I think there are a lot of conservative rabbis who have done this fairly well. I'll, I'll call them out on it. I think David Wolpe, his writing, he uses mass media, he's in newspapers, has done a very beautiful job of this. Criticism is not on the trenches. My criticism are those uh, who are so talented and have an eye for mass media. Why have the needs of this movement not yet been wedded in an efficient way towards mass media, particularly yeah, It's a fair critique. Again, the, def- the defense of the establishment, and again, call it an excuse, would be that if you're working so hard to fine-tune the mechanics and the process of dealing with the trenches, which is unbelievably absorbing and consuming, Really? I would take that excuse seriously if I didn't see so many ill-conceived attempts to actually be on mass media. I would take that seriously. However, I I know there are attempts, and I know they've tried, but they've done it not strategically. And shame on all of us. I'm not pointing at any one organization. Uh, They have not harnessed mass media in an efficient way to build entry points to begin Jewish journeys. And we've relied too heavily on the Kodesh HaKadoshim, and we haven't built on that Holy of Holies of the one-on-one relationship. And I think sometimes the holiness and intensity and beauty of that relationship has blinded us to the other entry points that we could possibly create to introducing the basics of Judaism to a wider audience. We should all take responsibility for this mistake, at least all of us, and myself included, who are involved in, uh, in Jewish media and in Jewish outreach in one capacity or another. Okay, so Dovin, there you go. It's a, it's a charge to all of us, yourself included. You know, 1840s not, can't be the excuse either. There has to be those, those access points. I agree with you 100%. And again, I don't think we're living in this binary of either or. I think these are mutually no, compatible agreed. goals. And different people have different skills and talents. You know, I appreciate the, uh, the, the sentiment that, that I can participate maybe on both sides of the aisle. And, I, and I'm open to doing it. Uh, it's not just money. You said before we need money. We need thought partners. We need creative partners. We need people who have the expertise and the skills to, again, not only create these kinds of programs, but to actually get them into sort of the bloodstream of, of mass media. Not easy at all. There's a, you know, we live in a, in a cacophonous, no, it is not a cacophonous easy. environment and, and, you know, people are, you know, flicking through at a million miles an hour. And I wouldn't know how to do that. You know, you're someone who's, who does that quite well. You know, I personally wouldn't know how I could create the greatest you know, content in the world. It might be, you know, best seen by my mother. And even she took a while till, till she got on my, my own podcast. <laughs> now, now she's a big fan, but it took a couple years, you know? So, you know, I'm not sure how, you know, it, it's certainly easier said than done. And again, when you're living, breathing and sleeping, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, like you say, and thinking about, you know, getting the pizza from the pizza shop and the, the plates from Costco and make sure the kid shows up with it. Right. Not simple to navigate both of those. And, and sometimes I would argue that a person shouldn't because, you need to focus on accomplishing and excelling in the area that you're primed to be dealing with. But yes, there is absolutely a place for that. Yeah, but once you're running another podcast on the side as your fifth job, then you really don't have any excuses, which is why I so lovingly point this out. I I always end my interview with more rapid-fire questions. Uh, I hope you will allow me. I added on... Oh, no, that way, that way I couldn't prepare? What do you mean? <laughs> I plan on doing the basics as well. Uh, I am curious if you have a uh, favorite guest or episode uh, from your history of Jews You Should Know. But I, yeah, People always ask me this, and uh, I tell them it's like, it's like your children, you know? You have a favorite, but you can't admit it. No, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to pick a favorite. The Daron Almog one that I mentioned to you before uh, comes to mind. I, I had a sure. remarkable conversation with Kalman Samuels, the fa- founder of Chalva in his beautiful place. Yoshua Joshua Fast, the founder of Nefesh Ben Nefesh, was incredibly moving. Sure. I mean, there, there's been so many. I, I feel like I haven't listed any women, but there are some remarkable, remarkable women that I've interviewed as well. Uh, there, there's so many, Dovin, and, and, and I really would need to go down the list and, and pick, you know, I can't say a favorite. But a favorite 20 or so, for sure. That's okay. You mentioned uh, Rabbi Sachs already. I'm curious, who are your white whales? Who are the guests you wish you were able to have? For me right now, the number the number one is Rabbi Lau. I would absolutely love to, to interview Rabbi Lau. I've come close many times. I was able to get my daughter to go uh, into an audience to see him, but I couldn't get myself in. And, uh, you know, it's I've been at different 
events and occasions with him, but it's 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 not easy because he doesn't really want to speak in an interview in English. So it's it's not simple to convince him to do that. Um, that would be my number one right now. I'm just so riveted by him as a as a personality, as a figure, as, as you know, living the, the youngest survivor of Buchenwald and and what he's done with his life and and the dynastic family from which he uh, stems and and all of that that surrounds him. Um, I think is just uh, profound, and I would love to you know be in his presence and and, and interview him. Let's get to some of the more familiar rapid-fire questions for those 1840 listeners out there. I know you are an avid reader. Uh, What are your go-to book recommendations, particularly for your college students, I'm curious, who are just entering uh, Judaism? Are there particular books that you like to recommend to open up people's hearts, whether specifically to Judaism or to religious thought in general? Yeah, There's obviously a lot of great books out there. You know, maybe not enough, but a lot of great ones. I'm, I'm doing this wonderful book journey right now, actually, uh, through 1840, uh, where I'm reading a great book about uh, the con- you know, conversion in Israel uh, with uh, with Rabbi Ellie Fisher, who was an old colleague of mine, actually, at the University of Maryland. He was the first JLIC sure. rabbi there. And, but I knew him far before then as as youngsters growing up. He was a couple years ahead of me uh, in Baltimore. But um, that's that's been a lot of fun. But um Look, I think Rabbi Becker's Gateway to Judaism is, is a classic that's wonderful for introducing Judaism in both a sophisticated but but sort of overarching way. Uh, Rabbi Tatz's books, for those who are interested in a little bit of deeper kinds of thinking. Yeah, what are the books that made you think differently about Jewish life and religious life in general? No, but I wish I, I wish I had an easy answer for that. I read a lot of shorter things. I read a lot of articles, a lot of you know journals, those kinds of things, more than I even read long form books. And I'll read anything from you know Mishpacha to to Lairhouse to you know whatever. I, I like to read all these kinds of things. I'm enamored with a lot of uh, the writings that co- that have come out of you know again Rabbi Sachs and a lot of that world, the YU world. I find in general as brings something unique that I think could benefit. Across the spectrum, I think it's starting to actually permeate, yes. you know, a certain type of organized thought, a certain type of uh, articulated thought, particularly in print. Yes, and, and I really enjoy that. I've been loving actually. I told I had Ari Lamb on on the show, and his grandfather. I told him I love to read the sermons. Uh, one of a kind, and they're just masterful, and they're and they're so timely and timeless at the same time. You're reading yes. about the Vietnam War, you know, and and you're there as it's unfolding, but it's also a message for today. Relevant in yeah. 2023. So I yes. love those. And so I, I read a lot of things along those lines that really just kind of opened my mind and so forth. But those aren't things that students are reading. You know, those are my own nourishment, I would say. I wonder, and we, we touched upon this as it relates to podcasts, but you have spent your life on the college campus. So I'm wondering if somebody gave you a great deal of money and allowed you to take a sabbatical for as long as you needed to actually go back to school and enroll in a PhD program of your choice, what do you think the subject and title of your dissertation would be? I don't have the subject and title, but I, but I have a general arena. I, I'm fascinated by the whole of movement by the Baltruva movement. You know, there have been some ac- academic studies done of it, but but sure. I would love to do some sort of deep dive. You know, my own parents were nourished from that world. They they actually met in Rav Noah Weinberger's apartment. That was kind of my, my personal origin story. And so I would love to do some sort of study about that, whether it's contemporary, you know, engaging kind of modern young people about, the, you know, what moves them or could move them, or whether that's kind of doing more of a historical look or a sociological look. Uh, sociology in general is, is something that's very, very interesting to me. Um, I find it alternately fascinating and frustrating. We read a book through your book journey that I thought was brilliant, but also maddening in a certain way about conversion in Israel. You probably have it on your shelf. When the state winks. When the state winks, uh, which I, I found you know maddening. In the, fascinating because it's it was just a really unique take on how to look at all the different parties involved in the mass, so to speak, conversion project in Israel, maddening because I'm always sensitive to the notion of people inserting themselves in a narrative and judging that narrative at the same time. The notion of a person evaluating from their high perch, I find very distasteful in a certain way. And that's maybe why I would fear away from sociology, but, but I'm also fascinated by it at the same time. My final question, I'm always curious about people's sleep schedules, especially people who have so many jobs like you and I. I think we're both competing with one another for how many side hustles can we amass? What time do you go to sleep at night and what time do you wake up in the morning? 
But then I would say I'm somewhere uh, between better than you and worse than I should be. Um, <laughs> you know, having heard you know your your schedule many times. L- look, I, I I would love to be I would love to be that early riser. I have colleagues who do that. Don't we all? My, my parents do that. You know, the old Benjamin Franklin. Yep. My wife often points out to me, you know, it's hard to do that when you go to sleep at two o'clock in the morning and so forth. So very often I, I, I have a hard time falling asleep. You know, I'm very jealous of people who just hit the pillow and they're out. That's not me. I have a kind of a restless soul. I'm a, a very, uh, you know, an active mind, so to speak. And, and I just find it very difficult to fall asleep. And even if I go to go to bed early and I'm exhausted, somehow I'm, I have this kind of second wind that as soon as my head hits the pillow, sweeps across me and that's frustrating um and so you know I, I i try to schedule things earlier in the morning than i want to which forces me out of bed um earlier than i would otherwise get up so i love to you know if i can get up at seven o'clock that's amazing and i feel unbelievable it doesn't happen nearly as often as i'd like usually it's eight eight thirty uh and so forth but uh i, I get to bed pretty late Again, certainly later than, than I than I want to. And I, that's one of my next projects. You said you, you've been working on nutrition. I've also been working on nutritional eating, uh, moving that direction. But I do say my next vista should probably be attacking or tackling my sleep patterns because there are definitely strategies, I'm sure, that could help me improve that. But, you know, one bite at a time over here. Rabbi Ari Koretsky, thank you so much for joining me and inviting me today to speak with you on the Jews You Should Know podcast. Rabbi David Pashevkin, thank you so much for joining as well. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.